Welcome to the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast from Nashville, Tennessee. I am your host, John Martin Keith. Celebrities, working class musicians, and people who work behind the scenes in all areas of the music industry will share their stories, encourage you, and give practical advice of ways you can make a living doing what you love in the music industry. This episode is brought to you by Edenbrook Productions. Edenbrook Productions is the company I founded to help musicians grow in their craft. Are you a songwriter, but maybe you've been told your songs aren't quite there yet? Or are your songs ready, but you don't feel stage ready? Or maybe music is your passion, but you feel imprisoned by your day job and you don't know what to do next to make your dream a reality. Well, Edenbrook Productions is here to help. We offer consulting services via phone call, Skype, and FaceTime. And for the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast listeners, we're offering an introductory one-hour consultation special. Click on the link in the show notes to contact me, and let's get you making a living in the music industry. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show this week. Today, I'm talking with my friend, co-writer, co-producer, and worship pastor buddy, Chris Clayton. Chris is one of the top worship music producers in Nashville. His track record includes some of my favorite artists, including Shane and Shane, Big Daddy Weave, and Phillips Craig and Dean. And his songs have been featured in Lifeway, Word, and Integrity Music. We are discussing the differences you will find as a producer starting out compared to the bar that Nashville sets for you to rise to and what it takes to hit that bar. Plus, we discuss the differences in recording a live album versus a studio album and what the role of a producer should play in an artist's life. Please enjoy my conversation with Chris Clayton. Hey guys, I am talking with my friend Chris Clayton. How's it going, sir? Good, sir. How are you doing? I'm great. It's so good to see you. It's been a while. It's been a minute. Yeah. Um, we write together. We write some worship music together. Uh-huh. We write some sync music together. Yeah. But um, it's been a busy year, and so we haven't <laughs> seen much of each other. So yeah. it's good to get together and hang out for a little bit. Well, thanks for the opportunity. This yeah, absolutely. Awesome. And now, first of all, before I forget, you have a podcast. I do as well. Tell yeah. me, tell us about your podcast. Yeah. So um, it really it was kind of birthed out of this um, kind of a side hustle I have, if you will, called uh, song capture. Um, as a as a producer, especially in a worship songwriter, I run a lot of run along with a lot of writers, uh, especially young writers, indie writers who um, are great at songwriting but don't know how to make a demo. And so that's kind of what birthed this idea of going. Maybe I could help um, some songwriters make demos here and there. Um, and so out of that, kind of this came this idea of a podcast as well called the Song Capture Podcast. And it was really um, I wanted to bring in friends and new friends who actually have been a part of the podcast writers that we all kind of know from the worship world uh, to kind of tell the stories behind uh, certain worship songs that we may sing in our churches, uh, but may not know the story of how that song came about. Um, So to give you an example, like uh, we had Cody Carnes on last season and he told the story of the blessing. It was a fresh song for Cody and Carrie and um, the Elevation crew. And so um, it just hit and it was very timely when it hit with, with things in in the world, and uh, so we just had him on, told the story. I didn't want to lose that story, and there's been others that we've had on that just kind of tell the backstory. I think the story is just as important sure. as the song. Yeah. So um, it's been a little bit of a hiatus just because of my schedule, but hopefully in the next year, and 
coming up, we'll be able to bring that back around. And so currently, as, at the time of us recording this podcast, yeah. how many seasons do you have out? Two complete seasons. Okay. We're in the, we've started season three. Okay. Kind of took a hiatus. We'll pick it up next year, hopefully. Yeah. That's the goal, at least. Absolutely. Well, people listening, um, what's the name of the podcast yeah, and where song, can you go find yeah, it? Yeah, Song Capture Podcast, um, which is kind of, again, you can go to, you can go to uh, songcapture.com. Okay. There's a link there for all the other services that we have. but And then it's on, you know, all the major uh, podcast outlets. All the places that you like to find your podcasts. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, people go check that out. That's um, that's going to be a great podcast for people to... Uh, I, I love I love behind-the-scenes stuff. Yeah, to me, same. that when I watch a movie, I get a DVD, you know, it has a movie on it or something like that, or a TV show or whatever. Uh, the behind-the-scenes stuff is just as important. It's at, sometimes it's even more fun for me to watch the behind-the-scenes stuff. Absolutely. And the, the making of. I love it, too. That's just a great I'm great a credit thing. junkie, so I love I love credits. Yeah. You know, I want to see who, who actually pulls something together. You yeah, know? yeah, absolutely. Well, um, so like we said, we you and I have known each other for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and um, we got together because I think we met on Facebook probably. yeah. Because we saw that each other had a podcast. Mm-hmm. We're both doing worship stuff. And um, so we went and had lunch and got to know each other, yeah. and... Um, so let's get together and write. And I was doing sync music. You were wanting to get into sync yeah. music, and so let's just try it out. And yeah. so we've written a few now, and yeah. uh, they're they're making their way out there into the world. And yeah. um, so it's it's so cool to to get together with people and, and to meet people. That's what Nashville is all about. I love that it's such a small town feel. We're all connected in a way that even though we don't know each, some of us may not know each other personally. It's like the friend of the friend, sort of mm-hmm. the six degrees of, seven, totally. of Kevin Bacon yep, totally. kind of a deal. Um, and so when you do finally meet that person, you're like, oh, I know Chris Clayton. Oh, yeah. And then all of a sudden there's this connection. Yeah. There's a quick relationship that that builds and develops because of that a lot faster than than it would under other circumstances, sure. if that makes sense. Absolutely. Would you does. agree with that? I, I do. I think people have this mentality. Nashville is – and it's not just Nashville, but it's the music city we're in, obviously, that – it is a very cutthroat you know, town, yeah. and let's be honest. There's probably our pockets of that that are, tend to be just sure. that way. But and I, I've been here five years now, and in the five years, I have sensed more community than I have anything. Mm-hmm. I've just, um, you know, if I need something, I can call somebody. You know, I, I needed a microphone one day. I had a vocal session. My microphone literally did not turn on that day, and I called a buddy of mine down the street and asked him if I could borrow a microphone. He's like, yeah, come get whatever you want. And it was just like, he does the exact same thing I do. Like he produces the same genre I do, but he wasn't going to withhold what he had just because. So yeah, you're right. It's, it's very, it's very, it's a, it's a very um, small knit town, even though you may not know everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Let's back up briefly here and tell us who you are, where you're from and what got you into music and down this road that we'd love to be a part of. Yeah. Um, I was born in Texas, born and raised in Texas. I'm a native Texan and uh, spent some time. I'm a pastor's kid, so I traveled around a little bit. Uh, spent some time in Oklahoma City growing up. Um, and then I moved back to Dallas for a while in the junior high years. But I, when people ask, Chris, where are you from? I'll, I'll simplify that and say I, I grew up in, in a little town called Beaumont, Texas. It's not really a little town. It's a, it's a thriving city. But uh, Beaumont, Texas is down in southeast Texas, about 90 miles east of Houston. And my dad in the mid nineties took a church down there to pasture. And so we moved there and um, it's significant in, enough to, to say I'm from there because that's where I discovered my love for music. Um, moving there <laughs> uh, the summer of 92 
and it was the first time my parents ever had MTV in the house. <laughs> so <laughs> I discovered MTV, and that was back when MTV actually played music videos. Right. Right. So um, started getting this love for music, and I always, I've always had a love for, for music. My, my mom plays piano. Uh, my dad played drums growing up, um, but my mom plays piano by ear and can just do her thing on it. So there's always been a little bit of music kind of in our in our blood. But uh, moved to Beaumont, discovered MTV, um, discovered how cool a guitar looked on television. <laughs> and I was like, I want to do that. Right. And that's probably a lot of kids do. And uh, my grandparents bought me my very first guitar and uh, bought a book, and I just started learning chords. I never really, it never took a lesson, per se. I just started learning chords, and I think my mom's ear kind of translated into me a little bit and just started, you know, picking out songs and um Fell in love quickly with uh, with CCM and and everything that was going out here in, in Franklin and, and there's this magical town called Franklin Tennessee that I kept hearing about and reading about in CCM magazine and wanted to be a part of and thought I'd never be able to go there and now I work here every day so it's like one of those dreams but yeah. uh, I started leading worship um, in my student ministry and uh, I had a very influential student pastor named Andy and. Um, gave me my very first shot, just taking a very young, scrappy kid who knew about four chords and um, started just leading worship with, and that looked totally different than it does now, right? So, I mean, it's like, you know, back then worship songs weren't they what they were today, but um, it was really kind of the foreground to, to what I was, to what I'm doing today. And then, um, as every high school guy does, I had a band in high school and we weren't very good, but we thought we were good. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, Made a little four, made a little record on a four track cassette recorder that my parents bought me, and that's really kind of got me in the bug of recording. So um, I'm moving fast because there's a lot to the story. But uh, after high school, I moved to uh, up to Dallas and um, went to Dallas Baptist University, and uh, that's where I met my wife. Uh, we've been married 20 years now, and um, we met there. Had full aspiration of going there just a year or a couple years, and uh, transferring out here to Belmont University to pursue music business. Mm-hmm. And um, met her literally my first or second week in my freshman year. And I was like, yeah, I think I'll stay here. I think I like this girl. I think I'm going to stay here. <laughs> and that, that, that proved to be the right move, obviously. Um, so I finished, I finished uh, DBU there. Started, started getting a lot of calls to go out and to lead worship for different events when I was in college. And I uh, was very active in my Baptist student ministry there on campus and would lead for our weekly Bible studies and um Really, just those were very formidable years between high school and college of just understanding how to lead worship. And um, like I said, started getting calls to go out and lead. Uh, wasn't sure how people were getting my name, other than maybe just obviously word of mouth that I was doing that. And so um, graduated from there and thought, well, maybe the maybe the the Nashville um, the call to Nashville just wasn't what God had for me, and I was content with that. Mm-hmm. And so. We got married uh, right out of college, and um, shortly after, I was like, okay, I really want to pursue this idea of producing, because um, I really love producing. All the while, I was working on, you know, trying to read about production, didn't really have any gear, but I was like, I really want to produce music. That's what I really want to do, but at the same time, I really want to lead worship, and if, there, if there's a way for both of these to happen, then I'd love to pursue that, and uh Came across a guy uh, by the name of David Parker, and uh, David's really one of my mentors that's still to this day is one of my spiritual fathers, and um, 
kind of was uh, reached out to him, knew of David because he led worship on the road, had led at conferences that I've been part of as a student, um, led at different weekend events that I've been part of. So I had kn- known of David, but then I also started seeing his name show up on uh, credits as a producer. And I was like, okay, he leads worship, he produces records. And so I reached out to him one day, as uh, after we graduated. We actually weren't we weren't married yet, and sent him an email, and just randomly out of the blue, was like, "Hey, this is who I am. This is what I want to do. Um, if you if you ever have a need for like an intern or a shadow, I'd just love to come and just hang out." And uh, as crazy as, as it may seem, um, he had just started kind of putting the word out that he was looking for somebody to help intern at his studio. Okay. So, um, met with David, we hit it off and, uh, ended up coming on as an intern for about three or four months, which was supposed to be about six months, but he needed me there every day. Cause I was just learning so quickly how to do record production and just, I would set up, I would set up sessions. I would set up microphones. I would set up, you know, pro tool sessions and just, this is back in 2000. So pro tools was even new, like just the whole idea of just digital recording. Yeah. That's a, that was a new world at that point. A brand new world at that point. And, um, David was working on some great records at the time. Um, one of my very first records I ever got to be part of was Shane and Shane Psalms, and uh, you I, did? I didn't know that. Yeah, I worked on that record. That was like, I mean, that thing came that's, out. That's one, one of my wife's favorite albums. Yeah, and, and one of mine too. But right. she loves that, that album. Yeah, they um, David produced that record, and I was just because I worked for David, I was there every day for every session, and okay. uh, quite an amazing record to be a part of. Just the difference the different things we did to, to create that record. So the things that you, you said earlier, you're a credits guy, and I yeah. am as well. We love l- seeing and reading about who's doing mm-hmm. what on albums and things like that. So liner credits, you made the liner credits in the Shane and Shane songs album. Yeah. So what does that feel like to get your first credit in a major label album? Yeah. Uh, well, it, or a major it, artist well, album. Well, at the time, they were they were independent artists. Right. But, yeah. they, but they had a massive... But they were huge. They had a massive following. Yeah. So t- yeah, to your, to your credit, yes, they had a massive following. Um, I don't think I realized the... Uh, at the time, I didn't realize what a big deal that was. Mm-hmm. And then I think the bigger deal was when they... So we, they recorded that record as an independent artist. And actually, it was just Shane Bernard and Shane Everett sang it with him. Right. But then... Um, I think it was in pop records, which was a label here in town mm-hmm. for a, a long while, um, discovered Shane and Shane and, um, which just rarely happens from what I understand. And I've never seen it happen actually ever again. They took the record as is that David produced and released that record as a major release. Right. Usually, you know, labels want to go and redo, redo things. Yeah. And I know we went in and re added, we added a couple songs to the record after the, after they had signed. Um, I think th- I think when it became out when it came out with the whole new artwork and as a major release and I was seeing it in stores as a as a just an assistant engineer and studio manager credit that was like oh wow okay <laughs> I'm like two years into it. this and I've already got a major <laughs> label credit this yeah. is awesome yeah um, but uh, yeah and then they actually worked at our so we had a B room studio for a long time that they actually ran so I got to hang out with them for three or four years after that and, uh, and still, you know, we don't keep in touch, but you know, uh, if I, when I've, when I've seen them over the years, they, they've always picked up where we left off, but that's awesome. Um, so worked there at, at, at David's studio for a long time, three or four years. And uh, then David shut the studio down because he came on staff at our church full time as worship pastor. He had split his time between a part-time role and, and then the studio and then went full time. So basically that meant I was homeless as far as a, a studio was side, side of things. And I had a, 
very important decision to make at that time. It was a crossroads for me, just going, okay, am I gonna, am I just gonna give up on this, or am I gonna try to just pursue it and do my own thing? And after talking with David about it and and, and my wife about it, Kara, we were just like, well, this is time to just be an entrepreneur and just do it. And so, um, sold a car, bought Pro Tools, bought a computer, and um, moved my studio home and just started making records. Not, I'd made connections over over the years with different people just because of working with David mm-hmm. and um, relationships, but um, really was just started putting myself out there and was like, I'm, I'm producing, let's see what happens. So let, let's talk about that for yeah. a second. When you first get into the process of creating your home studio mm-hmm. and you're wanting to let, let people know that this is what you're doing and you're wanting to produce for other people, uh, whether it be demos yeah. or full production, whatever, uh, how are you putting it out there so people know who you are and can find you so that you can get the work? Then or now, or both? Uh, then. Yeah. We'll talk about now, Yeah, but let's talk about yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think then it was just, and I think it applies somewhat to now, it's just been kind of organically, just through relationships. Like, I've never, like, taken out an ad in a trade magazine or, like, you know, put it out there, like, you know, I've never advertised any of my services other than a website. Like, and that's really more just kind of like, um, probably serves as a, uh, place for just people to find out more about me and Mm -hmm. just read. So that's maybe that's advertising. I don't know, but, um, I never went and like down to the clubs and was like passing out my cards or anything like that. I just never had, I never did that. I've never done that. Um, I think if it's anything like my, 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 quote unquote touring career as a worship pastor. Cause I, even at, during all this time I was traveling and leading worship a lot, like for 15 years, I did that forever doing co- conferences and camps. And, um, I, that just organically and un- evolved us through relationships with, with student pastors and pastors and worship pastors. So, um, I think for me it was just, yeah, it was just kind of just one, one artist would hear work that I did and they would tell another artist about that. And then they would tell another artist. There were records that, I did early on that were more beneficial for me as a producer in terms of growing my career than they were the actual artists mm-hmm. themselves. Sure. Um, so that's, I think it's always been word of mouth and just kind of like artists telling other, which is the importance of doing a great job. Like if you want to, you know, serving the artists well, doing a great job because that artist is a possibly going to come back and do another record with you, but they're also going to tell their friends about it. So that's kind of how I would answer that, I guess. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna we're gonna pause that conversation just for a second yeah, yeah. because something popped up when you were talking a minute ago that I think that reminded me. I was like, wait a second. I just remembered how the first time that I saw a picture of you to know like this is, and we've known each other for a couple of years now, yeah. and I'm just now re- having this conversation, thinking, wait, I know how I know this guy. <laughs> 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 Two years later. <laughs> Two years later. Because you and I are both worship leaders. Yeah. We both have done many, many years of youth camps. Yep. Correct? Correct. Okay. Um, and so when I am, one of the things that I do when I'm researching camps, mm-hmm. trying to reach out, because I'm always trying to reach out to new camps I've never worked with. Sure. And so I'm trying, and I'm also trying to expand, you know, sort of my touring schedule and the routing and places I've never been before. Yeah. And so... A few years ago, I was looking at Texas mm-hmm. and uh, a couple of places I've played down there. But I remember in the process of when I would go to a camp's website and I would look to see who they've had there, who they got scheduled to be there as a worship leader 
that particular year yeah. to see if there's a slot that they can get me in, if there's sure. a, any availability. And I remember seeing uh, a picture of you leading worship, that you're going to be the worship leader for this particular camp. Okay. I don't remember which one it okay. was. I, was I remember seeing the a picture of you yeah. and Chris Clayton, and right now during this podcast interview, <laughs> I was like, wait a second, that was you in that picture that I saw years ago yeah. on that website. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so, I ran I ran a lot of Texas camps yeah. back in the day. Um, I came off the road in, at the end of 2017, 2018. Um, but our summers were, were, were crammed full of camps. Well, so. what's funny about it is that because I, for people that are listening that happen to be worship leaders, if it's something that you want to do that to lead worship at camps or conferences or whatever, the trickiest thing that I find in that whole process is trying to get in when they're actually working on booking for either that year or for the following year. Yeah. I, I tend to have it, for whatever reason, I tend to contact someone they've either are they just booked who's going to be that year and i like i literally just missed it by days yeah and that happens all the time yeah and i'm just like oh it's so frustrating yeah or like oh we're not going to be doing that until november october mm-hmm. november and then when i so they say call back you know then and so and then when i do like oh we just booked somebody <laughs> it's like oh my gosh you gotta be kidding but yeah in the process of of doing that you know i would find out that it was your picture, and I thought, man, that guy keeps. I keep getting your gigs. No, <laughs> yeah, you keep Sorry. getting the gigs that I'm trying to get. That, that was the whole thing. It was like, I was like, oh man, I just missed it. Oh, and that's the uh, Chris Clayton. That's that guy, and I would see that every now and then, and it was like, I just missed it, and you were the guy who got it. And I thought, oh my gosh, and now we're like hanging out. We're buddies. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting, and we don't need to beat this horse to death, but um, but is maybe it's maybe it's good for somebody listening, like. I found that, um, yeah, you're right. Like some of these bigger camps, like associational camps, yeah. statewide camps, I mean, they book at minimum a year out, sometimes two years out. Um, and I, and I, and man, I was in the same boat. I would be, would try to want to get into these, um, these camps that were, you know, just, you know, bigger for whatever that means. Yeah. Um, but I would quickly realize, yeah, they've already booked next year and next year. So yep. like, it's just, and a lot of it was, um, again, I keep going back to relationships. Um, you know, you would have to know somebody that was kind of on the board or on the booking committee, mm-hmm. and that was like they would bring your name into. It. They weren't. They wouldn't always take the the cold calls, if you will. Um, but every camp was different. It was like there were some like I remember doing. I mean, I, I mean to give you an example, like one camp that I did in Texas was called Super Summer Texas, and I did it one year. But I tried forever to do that camp. And I say tried. I mean, I didn't like go beating down their door all the time. But that was an aspiration. Really, two reasons. One, it was the biggest statewide camp in Texas, like mm-hmm. from a Baptist side of things, like the associational camp, which is what I grew up in. And so it's like I grew up going to Super Summer Texas. So it's like yeah. full circle. It have been. It would have been so – it was so like – I was thinking it would have been so like uh, uh, honoring to come back to a camp that was really influential and in, to do what I do, you mm-hmm. know, at the time. And um Finally got a call one day, and I was just like, okay, like, we'll figure this out. Whatever they need to, you know, we'll figure out the logistics, but I'm doing this camp. Sure. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's um, over the years, I feel like it's gotten a lot more saturated with more and more worship leaders, obviously, so it becomes a little bit harder to to get in those, in those camps. Yeah, and some of those some of those camps now, they bring in, like, the big-name yeah. artists and worship leaders they and do. stuff, and so yeah. that you don't even get, if you're not 
assigned artist that's on the radio. Right. Some of those camps you can't even get into. Right. You know, and, it's and, like, <laughs> and for me too, uh, like I used to do a lot of Disciple Now weekends. Yeah. So like, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, gosh, I've done hundreds of them. And um, I think one thing that I found was, again, relationships, you know, coming even to those smaller churches in middle of central to west, east Texas, like the, those youth pastors were on steering committees, if you will, for these, some of these bigger camps. So I would develop those relationships, not to use them, but to really, I mean, we would go year after year to these denounce with them and we would develop trust with them is what I'm getting at. And so we would develop trust with them. If we can, if we can do ministry to their 50 to hundred students, then they can trust us on a bigger stage sure. to do it that way. So there is a, there is a, for lack of a better word, a little bit of a hierarchy and kind of like, okay, go, go serve these churches who are out in the middle of nowhere, who don't get this kind of worship every day in terms of quality and, and that whatever, but, um, develop those relationships because they could lead to other things. Sure. Or those youth pastors go to another church. That's, they bring you along to their church. So yep. again, in relationships, but anyway. Yep. All right. Sorry, I had to no, go off good. on that. I'm glad you did. That's funny. I didn't know that. <laughs> go off on that thing for just um, a minute. Uh, and then, okay, now we're back on track. Story. Sorry. Okay. Uh, say again? It's back, that's, we go back to story? Go back to the story, okay. yes. Yeah, that's um, I think where we were. Um, yeah, after that, I um, started my own studio. So I moved at home. And This is in Texas. This is in Texas. Okay. Yeah, so this was, you know, yeah, 2000, I don't remember, but it's been a while. Moved at home and just really started this whole idea of producing out of my home and just doing that. And uh, because I am a worship leader, even today, a worship pastor, and even then, I would get a lot of calls for worship from from worship leaders and worship bands and um, to produce their records because I think people trusted me on that end of things and still trust me today that I get that idea of writing and producing songs for the church. And so I, I get a lot of calls for that. Um, fast forward uh, to 2015, and uh, actually before that, 20, 2014, um, I started coming out here a lot to Nashville in the 2010s, I should say, um, mainly as, um, a, as a producer who was coming out here to mix records. So I, I developed a relationship with a guy named Sean Moffitt, who's a mixed guy here in town. And Sean and I... Crazy enough, we met over MySpace, if you remember MySpace out there. <laughs> and um, Sean had moved out here uh, in that same time frame, was, and we kind of developed this relationship. So I'd be producing records, and I would literally f- budget to fly out here and just come hang out with him for a week as he would mix a record that I was producing. And sat and just watched him and shadowed him on mixing and learned so much. Even stuff that I use today when I mix stuff, it's like I, I watched him do that. And so that I started coming out here frequently, probably two or three times a year for that. Um, all the while, um, had gotten reconnected with an old friend of mine who I'd known for a long time, a guy named Michael Farron. Michael Farron. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> if you don't know Michael, Michael's songwriter here in town, um, and written, written a lot of great songs over there. One being Let It Rain that Michael Levy Smith cut and yeah. that kind of what got him on the map here. But, uh, Michael and I have known each other for 20 years and, uh, he randomly reached out to me one day. I was like, Hey. I've kind of been following what you've been doing as a as a worship leader, traveling songwriter, producer. I'm starting my own record. I'm starting my own uh, publishing company here. Um, would you be interested in talking about maybe signing on as a writer? And I was like, Well, I don't even know what that means. Like, I literally had no idea. Like, he was reaching out to you to be a writer on his publishing. Yeah. Company. So he was starting a label. Okay. A small publishing arm. Um, 
yeah, it randomly reached out to me one day. Like we were literally, I'm, I'll never forget it. We were loading out of an event. We were playing at an event uh, in the Dallas area. Uh, it was raining. I remember that. And like my phone rang and Michael, it was Michael. And I, if you know Michael, when Michael calls, you better answer because you may not hear back from him for a while. <laughs> oh, I know. So I uh, I, know <laughs> I picked it up and I was like, hey, man. And we talked for a brief second. And he's like, and kind of told me that. And uh, we ended up circling back and talking more about it. But he started this small little publishing arm and uh, was like, hey, I'm reaching out to a handful of people that I would trust and maybe be a part of this. And I said, well, you know, I don't, I don't really know what all that's about, but I'm interested in learning more because I, I wasn't seeking out. I was just writing songs, you know, for my records and for other people here and there as I was producing, but I had no idea what the whole publishing world looked like. I just, I knew a little bit about enough to be dangerous, but no, no idea what a contractor or whatever was going to look like. So I said, he said, I said, well, actually I'm coming out to Nashville in, a, in about a month and maybe we could sit down and talk more about it. And he's like, great. Who are you writing with? And I said, well... I don't have any rights yet. I haven't even put, I haven't even thought about it. He goes, dude, just get out here. I'll take care of you. I'll, I'll set up some rights and stay at my house and we'll just hang out for a few days and just see if there's something here. So came out here and um, this actually used to be Michael's studio. That's what I, yeah, I was yeah. going to mention that. Yeah. So where we're at this morning, where we're tracking this podcast, it was Michael's studio. So I walked through that door for the very first time, sat in this room and we just, you know, had a lot of rights in here during that week, you know even down in the building of my church. And mm-hmm. um, I think it was like right even here that we kind of did a little handshake deal that, that kind of like, this is what it would look like, you know? And so, you know, again, naive green Chris had really didn't know, know what he's getting into. Um, but about a year later, and I'm still living in Dallas, we all, the writers that were on Michael's label, a handful of us, we all resigned with Michael and integrity music. So okay. Michael had, um, kind of partnered with integrity on on his label and so we all re-signed deals with with them and so i wrote three years underneath michael and integrity and so i did a i did a year and a half of that deal i think that's about right still living in dallas even in that but even that if in that year and a half i was starting to make a lot of trips out to nashville i would come out here to write um for conferences that we were that the label was helping put on um and to be a part of those and so i remember sitting in april of 16 um, looking at my wife, Kara, and just being like, I think it's time to move to Nashville. And granted, we're 38, four kids at the time. And I'm thought, who says that at 38? You know, four <laughs> kids, like we're going to uproot our family and move to Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. You're supposed to do that when you're 20 and single or newly married and, and reckless. <laughs> you know, right. it's like, um, and she looked back at me with tears in her eyes, and she's like, I've known we're supposed to move to Nashville for a long time, but I was waiting for the Lord to drop that in you. And, of course, it was just like our whole bodies just kind of just, like we just felt this moment like the Lord was bringing us to something. Sure. And um, so I had I had a summer on the road, finished up the summer on the road, and we moved our family here in October of 16. Moved here with one record on my schedule, and that wasn't until February of, tw- of 2017. <laughs> Um, but then we, and, and I obviously knew I had a lot of relationships. I had a relationship with Michael. I had some with integrity, a lot of different crew people out here. Um, so relationships were great, which is more than some people have when they move here. Yeah. And, uh, had a lot of, had a lot of momentum in relationships and, and more work was coming out here. I always said, I always say, you know, Nashville didn't, I didn't, I didn't come calling on Nashville. Nashville came calling on me because I feel like more opportunities and more, um, potential for work was coming out of Nashville than it was Texas at the time. Texas was kind of 
not drying up, but it just was like, okay, I've hit a ceiling out there that I just mm-hmm. feel like I can't break through unless I move to a, a music city atmosphere that's going to challenge me, where I'm not the strongest person in the writing room anymore. And so um, we moved out here in uh, 2016. I had developed a relationship with uh, a guy by the name of Seth Mosley, who's a producer here yep. in town, and uh, started doing a lot of demo work for him in terms of... He would start a demo in now, the in the did, writing room. Did you know Seth already? No, I didn't. Uh, crazy, how did, how yeah. Did you make that connection. The backstory there. Um, Seth has a podcast uh, yep. called the at the time was the full full music full circle music show. Uh, it's since changed name to the Made It Music Podcast. But um, at the time, he had just launched that podcast, and I discovered I knew of Seth just through again credits. You know, you just see his name and go, "Who's Seth Mosley?" And you start doing research and. Um, quickly fell in love with his work and just thought he was, you know, doing great stuff and um, found his podcast, started listening. And on one of his podcast episodes, he said, "Hey, uh, here at Full Circle, we're always looking to expand our team. So if you if you produce and write, whatever, always looking to expand that." And so I hear that and I go, "He's hiring. I'm moving to Nashville. I can get a job. It's problem solved." And so uh, somehow, some way, I had Seth pers- I had Seth's personal email address. I don't know how I had that, and I still to this day don't know, remember how I got Seth's personal email address. So I emailed him like, that same day and was like, "Hey, my name's Chris. I write for Fair and Integrity. You know, we have mutual friends. I'm moving to Nashville in the fall. Uh, you said this on your podcast. Love to know what that means, and just curious how we can maybe work together." And he hit me back like 30 minutes later which I was very surprised and um, said, Hey, um, love to hear some stuff you're producing. Just, you know, we're trying to build a team to help us do some demo production, blah, blah, blah. Send me some stuff. So, um, sent him, sent him a reel of stuff that I'd done. He hit me back a couple of days later and was like, Hey, love your stuff. Um, let's try track out on some stuff and see if it, you know, see if it works. So, this was this was right before this is like back in this is in August of 2016. So right at the end of the summer, we were planning a a uh, a trip to Nashville with some friends who were moving with us at, um, here to just do like an exploratory trip and um, find see what area we wanted to live in, look at home houses and whatever. So he goes, uh, "Hey, I'm going to sing you a vocal to tune, uh, just as kind of a test run, and uh, if you can edit and tune it, pocket it, all that stuff, that'd be great." I was like, "Perfect." And he, he said, and I need it back in 24 hours. I was like, oh, crap, we're about to leave for this trip. So mm. I brought a rig to Nashville on that trip, and I'm sitting in my car as my wife drives us to Nashville, and I'm editing that vocal <laughs> on the road, uh, on the highway. And we get to our we, – we stop in Little Rock that night. We drove halfway from Dallas, and uh, I remember staying up, like, till 3 in the morning, like, working on this track for him. Send it to him. Think, I'm done. It's great. He's going to love it. I get feedback and I get this long list of feedback from him of like things I need to do better on the vocal. Wow. Like very humbling. Yeah. Very humbling. But I love that kind of feedback. I like want to hear that stuff and like how I can get better. And so uh, in between our trip stops, I would literally be at home and I knocked out the vocal and like tweaked it. And um, the next one, I, we got back from that. He it, it ended up being fine. It was great. He loved it. Um, he called me like two weeks later, which in that two weeks, that's the worst two weeks ever because you think he maybe I wasn't good enough. Yep. And so I haven't heard from him. And so he gives me he gives me a text or a call or whatever. And it's like, hey, I got another track. I'd love for you to do some like some some key stuff on it and uh, edit the vocal and 
just kind of clean up the demo that I started. Because Seth would start these demos in the writing room. Okay. And he would then would send me the the session, and I would finish it out for him. And I, I was like, okay, should I ask him? Is this a, is this a paid thing, or is this still like, are we still trying out? Sure. And so I just asked him. I was like, hey, I'm good either way, but I just kind of want to know the expectation. Are we? Am I good? Okay. Is this a, a for hire thing? And he was like, oh yeah, yeah, we're good. This is totally a paid thing. So like, at that point, kind of became on his demo staff, if you will. Okay. So I did that literally. We moved here in the fall. And I just, I literally, if it wasn't for Seth, and I've told him this, I said, if it wasn't for Seth, um, our first year, we would have tanked financially because I just, there wasn't enough momentum rolling on other things yet. Um, so I did, I did, I worked on demos for a lot of artists here in town that he was writing with, and some that made the record, and some that I actually got production credit for, okay, um, nice. additional produ- production credit for. So, um, but that honestly, Marty, that was like, higher education of production for me for a year because again i would get that feedback i was working on great songs great tracks and there was a bar i was learning the nashville bar of production i thought i had a bar of what that looked like in texas okay i was learning that new bar so what's the difference between the bar in texas and the bar in nashville yeah well i would say for me uh, i could break it down probably a little bit to a few things one i'll go back to vocal production um learning how to properly track and edit and pocket and um, tune a vocal was probably the biggest thing I learned from him. The expectation of that bar, because I would go in, you know, I would what I thought was tuned and tight and a pop, you know, ready vocal wasn't what his expectation was. Now that varies probably from producer to producer, but this is guy. This is a guy Seth who's at the top of his game, you know, right then. Mm-hmm. And so I would quickly learning was learning. He would he would get very uh, detailed in his feedback of the notes of terms of like, Hey, this syllable, this note is a hair is a half step flat. I mean, he could just hear it and he would just say it's half step flat. You need to tune that up. So my ear got retrained to be able to hear the things that he was hearing, uh, when it came to vocal stuff like that. Um, another example would be just tight timing, learning that everything, whether you like it or not, modern music is so driven by a grid. Yep. And learning to have to learning how to pocket that stuff so that it is so tight that um, there is no discrepancy in that. Um, but also, I think the the bar of just the big picture of production of learning how to layer things and how to introduce new things into the picture and how certain sounds create certain emotions. Um, and looking at it from from that side of things was was a new bar. So there's a lot that play into that. But there's probably a technical bar, and there's actually probably a musical bar as well well when you were doing the demo work with him are you doing mostly full production demo work or is yeah. that kind of like the you know guitar vocal piano vocal or are you kind of doing both of those things depending on the artist depending um a lot of it was so seth has this mentality that he he doesn't produce demos he produces masters yeah and so um and i learned something from him in this that i still use today um that i try to at least um he would produce a demo Full tilt, like I mean, man, we, he would be like, "Hey, I want to, I want to put real drums on this demo." So, like, mm-hmm. hire out a real drummer and sure. send it to this one, or send. I want, I want these kind of guitars on it. So, if you can't take it, make sure you send it out to somebody. And um, his whole intention, at least what I perceived his intention was, produce a really slamming demo so that the label hears it and goes, "Hey, why don't you just do the master?" So, 
he would actually get hired on to actually produce the record. And then he would go back and literally take the demos that we started and then just probably recut the vocal because they would probably spend 20 minutes on a vocal in a writing session just to get a vocal down. Right. But he would go back and re recut the vocal. We would go in and he would probably go in and re-clean up some stuff. But he would keep a lot of the elements of the demos, which is how I got some production credit. Okay. Because like um, he would keep a lot of the stuff that I would do. So either, either I'd get production credit or I'd get a player credit type thing. So, um, but it was, I, I learned that that's a brilliant way to just develop the trust of the artist sure. because you're helping create the sound of that song. Yeah. And then whether it's the artist or whether it's label or whether it's management, hear that and go, man, we really love what he did on the demo. Why don't we just have him finish out the master? Yeah. So now you're moving into a, an income generating stream versus just like, I'm just going to write it. I'm just going to do a demo because I'm a writer on the song. So, um, yeah, that, I think that's, that's uh, that's one thing I learned from him as far as, far as another bar of like being a producer in Nashville is you're trying to develop trust with the artist on that side of things. Yeah, that's fantastic. And things that we that the audience really needs to to know that these are these are ways to make you know to give yourself an opportunity that you would never think about necessarily unless we're having this conversation to say okay th this is how you need to do it. Yeah, you know. Um, and I've found that once I started doing sync music, and we've done this together, mm -hmm. is that when you're writing music for sync, you you don't have time to create a demo. Right. You can't, for one, you can't send a demo in. Right. They don't. They don't even they don't take want that. Yeah. Right. They want a finished product. Mm -hmm. And usually, you've got 24 to 48 hours to create an entire song out of thin air, yep. fully produced, mm -hmm. sent in. That's got to be good enough that can go on a TV show or yep. a movie or whatever. Yeah. So um, we sort of work in that same vein already, anyway. Yeah. Which you know, which makes things move a lot faster. And if you can create something and produce something and lay it out there that is radio ready yeah. the first time out. And I've noticed this. I've had this conversation with other people, other producers, that a lot of times the demo sounds better than the master that goes on the album and ends up on radio or on CD. Yeah, it can. You know, yeah. many, many times yeah. I've had that conversation and people are like, like, yeah, the radio single's okay. But the demo was way better. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, of course we never we'll never hear what the demo right. sounded like, but it's out there. You know? Sure. So yeah, yeah. Let, let's talk about now. So yeah. we are now we're currently this is where Michael Farron's studio used to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I wrote with Michael here a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, first time I, we got together, and um, and now he's moved on. He's over at I think he's, he's at Word. He's at Word. Yeah. Uh, publishing now, writing for them, um, and so now you are. This is your studio. Mm -hmm. Um, first of all, how fun is that, that you get to take Michael's old studio and now make it yeah, yours? Yeah, you know, yeah. And this is, I love this space. This Thank is you. such a cool place. Thank you. Um, and, but now as a producer, like this is what you do full time. It is. This is, this is what you get to do. And yeah. as a worship, you're also a worship pastor yeah, at the church I next am. door here. Mm -hmm. Um, but as far as, you know, producing, you're all over the place. I mean, you do a lot of traveling. I know you go back to Texas and do a lot of live recordings for yeah. different churches and things yeah. like that. Let's so let's talk about what that kind of world looks like for you a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. To, to what you were talking about, yeah, I, I kind of wear two hats in in terms of um, the producer world. I mean, producing songwriting is definitely full time and more um, just throughout the week. And then uh, shortly after we moved here, I came on staff here at Gateway Church in Franklin as a worship pastor and uh, was on staff. Um, yeah, come up on five years here and, uh, yeah, it's, 
it's it's a juggling match throughout the week sometimes to, to be able to wear both hats, especially as the church grows, as production world grows for me. Um, but threaded throughout every week is just this thread of grace that will allow me to do both. I have a great team here that helps that helps with production and on and stuff like that. So I, I'm I'm blessed to have that. But and my pastor just is very supportive of what I do down here in 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 the studio and. Um, so yeah, it's kind of evolved into this world of, of production, um, you know, moving here, this is our fifth year here and Lord's just opened up a lot of doors, a lot of more, a lot more relationships. Um, a lot of different artists have come to, through these doors in the last five years to be a part of, but, um, yeah, especially in the last couple of years, even through, um, the craziness of 2020, like started doing traveling, um, which I thought I was coming off the road, but I kind of jumped back on a little bit, not to the extent that I was, and I probably will never be that extent, but, um, I, I've been working with a lot of artists who, um, I'll work on a track here and I may fly out to where they are to capture the vocal and, uh, work with them there. Or like this church in Texas, I've been working a lot with this church, uh, Valley Creek church in Texas on, on uh, a live record, a Christmas EP that we just released. And, um, yeah, I'll go out there and work with them for uh, a week and a half at a time, just on their on their music, then bringing it back here to Franklin and working on it here. So there's a lot of a lot of file swapping, a lot of a lot of plane rides to, to work on things like that. But um, especially in the live music world, it's a very it's a very involved process of doing live records. What's the difference in recording a live record versus a studio? Yeah, record for the, how you do it. I think the mentality. Uh, of that people perceive that a live records actually is easier and because it's easier, it should be cheaper. And it, and when really it's actually the opposite, it's actually a lot more work okay. than a studio record. Um, in what way? Well, yeah, I think, I think process wise, at least my process, and I think everybody might, every producer probably has their process, but I, you end up recording the record almost three times in, in a live record scene. Okay. One being, um, the first being in pre-production. So, to give you just context, so when I sat down with Valley Creek and we started working on the record for this year, like we've been we've been writing for this record since November of last year, so songs just floating around email boxes and drop boxes and Trello boards and whatever, just listening to songs, writing songs, a lot of writing sessions. But then once we picked the final songs for the record, then I spent a good um, month probably just building out pre-production tracks. So. Um, building out demos for them to learn the songs, writing parts, working with their team, sending them stems to be able to write their parts, like sending to their guitar players to write their parts, coaching, editing, producing those parts, um, and then kind of, and then printing out final stems for them to play to in a live scenario at the night of the recording. So there, right there, we've already recorded full demos of the eight songs that we've done that were, that's going on the record. Well, then we record the live night, and so we capture that night. Um, so then we record it the second time, and then we're going into the, the post-production process, which is what we're wrapping up right now, and that's going in and seeing what we want to keep, which I love try to keep as much as we can, mm -hmm. um, and then what we need to replace or what we need to augment. Um, nine times out of ten, for me, I'm going to replace electric guitars because I like to get better tone, better timing, just focus on parts. Um, but not always the case. Some of the stuff we keep. This time around, which I was really grateful for, we actually were able to keep, we, we replaced the, uh, some of the main vocals, uh, but we actually kept some of the kind of spontaneous flow moment vocals. And as they would go off and kind of lead, uh, 
maybe write another section on the in the spontaneous section or whatever. We, I, it's 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 hard to recapture that moment from in the mm-hmm. studio and the post production side. So they sang it really really well, and I was able to go in and just you know do some editing, some tuning, and keep those moments. When you're recording a live album, because you're in this live space, you're in a big auditorium. Yeah. You know you got live speakers going. Mm-hmm. If you got an audience, all that kind of stuff. And you're tracking all that live. And then you go in post-production and you have to replace parts. Mm -hmm. Do you have to replace it in the studio? Or do you go back and do you, like in the same space that you recorded live, have them re-record in that same space to pick up the same tones? No. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, we just do it in the studio. Okay, so then how do you recreate the sound of a live venue in the studio, I know it happens, but I yeah. just, I want to pull out for our listeners, yeah, yeah, what that process is like, and how do you recapture the same sound and, and tones that you do in studio that you do live, right? Um, so probably a couple of things I can say on that. One, like from a vocal standpoint, um, I'm not using the same microphone they used the night of. Obviously, I'm using you know that mic back there, Neumann mic, in. Um, if I if we were just keeping if I didn't have any like if I wasn't keeping any of the actual live vocals, it would be it would be easy because no one's ever gonna know the live tone from the night of because they never heard it. In this case, we're actually keeping some of the actual live vocals. Um, it's it's a it's a lot of EQing and processing to get them to sound very matched. Um, I've got it to a place on my session that I feel like it's matched, but then I'm going to really lean into our mix guy who's mixing it to be like, and I'm hiring a guy who does a lot of live record mixing. So he already knows this world. He's not, you know, he knows how to be able to create this moment of making it feel like it was in the room already. Okay. So it's, it's important to get someone who actually is seasoned and experienced in, in that kind of genre, in that kind of uh, live recording atmosphere. So a lot of it for me is like, well, one, it's the performance. Actually, I want to make sure that I'm not. This is going to sound weird, but I'm not. I don't want to overproduce the the overdubbed vocal, so that it sounds so. This I, I want it to be clean. I want it to be timed. I want it to be uh, in tune, but I want it to feel like it's a live vocal, even on the performance side. So, like, even if it's a little bit, even if it's just a little bit out of time, or if it's just a little bit squirrely sounding, like it's not. I want to. I, I want it to feel like it's a live vocal. Mm-hmm. I'm going to match it with a reverb that's going to sound maybe close to the room as well. Um, so it's just, it's a lot of processing to just make it feel natural. Um, the other caveat to the thing is performance wise, like with a lot of, as a lot of live records are doing, but especially with the Valley Creek record, um, they actually record, they actually videoed it. Like they actually filmed it. Right. And so we're having to be really mindful of making sure that the recut vocals are matching up timing wise to the, original vocals so that when they come back to them on a video side of things that they're actually they're synced mm-hmm. um it's there's no way we can get it all perfect and that's the beauty of uh, film editing they can cut away if a word is not held as long you know <laughs> and that's something we have to do in post-production like once we get the videos back i'll sit with the team and we'll watch for those things like oh you know what that word didn't match up and that's we can't fix it now but he can make a video editor can make an edit and no one's ever going to know the difference on that so um, yeah, I think it's just magic of EQ and compression and, and effects that can help kind of tie it all together. It's such an interesting concept to do all that. Yeah. You know? Um, and that's why I say it's so much more work than what people realize it is. Yeah. 
and this is going to sound weird. This may sound. Uh, I love live albums. Yeah, I love the feel of it, and you know the people in the room. And in some ways, it's almost like, what's the point of doing one if you have to go back and recut all this stuff and redo? Sure. Like, why even do it if if half of it it's going to end up being a studio album, technically, quote unquote. Does that make sense? Yep. Um, I'm just curious. Like, yeah. what, are, what are your thoughts on that? My thoughts are this. Um, I can't. I can't produce a moment from the crowd in the studio that I can live. Okay. Um, I'm not recutting the moments. I'm. I'm. And, and you'd have to hear. I mean, as you listen, even as you you've heard live records, sure. live worship records. But yeah, like, I've been you, a part of them. I, I mean, you, yeah. I mean, I there, and that's what I just. That's what I encouraged. Like the Valley Creek team, I keep bringing them up because it's it's the one I'm working on right now. But like, I'm not here to capture your performance. I'm here to capture the moment sure. that the Holy Spirit does in that in, in that time. The emotions and the rawness of hearing the crowd worship is something I can't reproduce in a studio. Yeah, and that's what I'm more interested in, in capturing. I'm I'm interested in capturing those moments after the song where the Holy Spirit's doing something really special and unique in the room, and the team is sensitive enough to flow with that and to keep pressing into that song. Um, that's why I wanted to leave those like everything in that moment alone. Yeah, because I. I, 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 if I try to re- re- reproduce that live in the, in the studio, yeah, you're gonna lose it. I lost it. I lost, I sucked all the emotion out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are a lot of camps out there who do live records and do very minimal overdubs. And I think that's where you get to level of musicianship, you know, you, where you really spend time yeah. in rehearsals to get great tones, to get great tracking, to get great, you know, vocal parts. And um, the level of a singer who can sing well enough. To not have to worry about trying to be, you know, trying to uh, go back later and recut it. Sure. I think if I sat with this session that I'm working, these sessions that I've right, worked right now, on a on majority of them, I could probably edit and tune and pocket the live vocal enough to keep it. But by the time I do all that, I can also recut it and just get it really where I want it to be from a performance side. Um, I hear I hear what you're saying, and it's always the question people ask: like, why are we? Why it's not a live record anymore? Yeah. Um, but again, I go back to the emotions of the moment, especially in a worship world. Sure, and that makes total sense. Yeah. You know, I understand the yeah. the blending of the two worlds mm-hmm. to do that. So, yeah. um, and people have been doing it. I mean, even since the early '90s. Sure, I, I remember uh, when Stephen Curtis Chapman put out the Live Adventure. Got it. Like the Great Love Adventure that album. Yeah. The Live Adventure yep. was a live concert recording, whatever, and it won a Dove Award for you know live yeah. video, whatever it was. Yeah. Um, and then years later, our, he's talking. I think it's actually in his book, his um, heaven in the real world book. Yep, yep. Heaven the, between heaven and the real world. Yep. And he's talking about that video. And he was sick when he was recording when they recorded that live album. I remember this. Yep, I've read the book. And yeah. so he had to go back and re-record his vocal after the fact. Yeah. And try to match up what they were doing. And that he would go outside and he would run up and down the street <laughs> to wear himself out like he had yeah. been, like he would have to do on stage. Yeah. And I was like, I never knew that. Yeah, yeah. And yet, you know, so they overdubbed and it's not really live vocals to some degree at least. Right. Um, but listening, you would never know. Listening, you never know. Yeah. Ended up winning a double award. Right. <laughs> I was like, and I think well, you're just, cheating. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I think that goes back. Like, I mean, obviously, you know, 
I don't apologize for the process that I do. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of mm-hmm. it. I think it's a very accepted process. Absolutely. But I think it's, it shows the importance of getting the right personnel on a project like that so they can pull that. That they can that, do that it. That sure. they can do it. Everything from a producer to an engine to a mix guy, you yeah. know, um, to be able to, to pull it all together at the end. Mix is so crucial on a live record. Um, we actually pretty we 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 talked we've talked about it. We just we just decided on a mix guy a week ago. And we've talked about several different guys. Who do we want to mix this? Who's pulling it together the best? And um, it's so important. It's the mix. Mix can make or break a live record, in my opinion. Sure, that's good. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about just the room here. I'm looking around the studio, mm-hmm. and I see behind there's this whiteboard behind you that's got all kinds of X's <laughs> and check marks and yeah. all kinds of things. Um, talk about the process of recording, whether it's a, a li- the live album or you know, a single or a studio album, whatever it is, like this board behind you, yeah. I'm looking at, that's the Valley Creek Live yep. uh, album. And you got check marks and X's and things like, what is what is that for? How do you kind of break down the process of, you know, going through what that is on the board there? Yeah. Um, the board is something that I actually implemented this year. I've had it for a while, but it, it, it took this form. I know y'all can't see it, but this form of, check boxes and marks and it's something i didn't really invent there's you see these in studios a lot sometimes but um at any given time especially you know in the last especially this past year um you know i may have had i think 15 songs on the board at one time so like i can't keep up with all that in my head so i started putting this board in place just to like have a visual reminder of what's done and what needs to be done so i usually look at that board at the end of every day and kind of walk through it and go, okay, this is what I need to do tomorrow. Okay. And so I'll look at it and go, okay, well, I need to cut acoustics on two songs. So I'm going to carve out some time to cut acoustics on this. And then I have another record I need to cut acoustics on or whatever. So I'll cut it. While I have the mic up, I can just knock that out. And so um, I will say there's nothing more satisfying than put an X on the board because you feel like you're actually accomplishing something that day. Yeah, yeah. So it's also very beneficial to me as a producer going, I actually got something done today sure. towards a record. Because otherwise, it's a, it's a never-ending process. It's a never-ending process. If you don't have something to check off by. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, process-wise, again, you know, we'll do a, like a single. Um, usually with singles these days, I'm... Um, it's, it's, it's more cost-effective for me to just send files to players in within town to actually play on the record than for me to go hire out uh, a studio because you're i mean they can't see it but you know this is not i can't cut drums in this room this is more of like an overdub type suite i can do everything but drums in here pretty much yeah but i'll go if on days i need to cut you know that i would need to cut drums with a live drummer you know we'll run down to any number of studios that we have in nashville and rent out their space for a day um, but for a single, it doesn't it's not cost effective in my opinion to do that when I can go pay a drummer anywhere from you know 150 to 250 a song and knock that out, or I would pay anywhere from 350 to 700 dollars a day for a studio mm-hmm. on top of the drummer's fee. Correct. So uh, for singles, usually what I will do is I'll build out pre-production. Pre-production is such a, a crucial part of what I do, like sitting down with the artist. Getting getting kind of a work tape or a rough demo of the song, listening to the arrangement, giving some feedback. Again, producing is more than just hitting the red button. It's actually working with the artist to make sure the song is the best it can be. And that can be a very dangerous – well, it cannot be dangerous. It can just be very – you have to kind of tread lightly depending on the artist because some people hold their song so tightly to their chest they don't want ever you know to touch them. But I found the artists that really want to grow and that succeed have very open hands to their songs because they want – 
They want a they want a producer who actually will speak into their music as in a whole and not just capture it on on a hard drive. So we'll listen to the song, we'll work out the arrangement, adjust anything that that we both feel like it needs to be adjusted lyrically, chord wise, and then I'll sit in here in this room and just kind of start building out a track and it's just basic kind of basically I just call it getting on a grid like just figuring out BPM. Um, laying down a basic scratch piano, maybe some pads, maybe some basic programming, and then either have the artists come in if they live here in town or if they have a capability of recording a scratch vocal where they're at, just send me a scratch vocal, and then that comes in. And then from there, I'm sending it out. Like, I'll usually send it out to a drummer and get drums on it. Every stage, I like to send a rough mix to the artist. Like, once we get drums back, I'll send a rough mix to the artist going, hey, this is what drums did. How you feeling? Like, makes them feel like they're a part of the process. Yeah. But I also don't want to, any surprises come back after I'm three layers into this thing going, hey, I don't like this. And right. I have to go back and undo it, which is just going to cost more time, more money, all that. Um, so, yeah, bass, electrics, um, a lot of farming out just to, to players. They'll send back files. And, I mean, as that's just – that's become a very normal thing to do yeah. uh, and very accepted. And I think if you get if you get great players with great setups at home, I mean – some of the best drum sounds I've ever heard have come out of a guy's bedroom. Yep, and they're just insane. Sure. Yeah, um, same with same with the guitar. I mean, just like they're just sitting there with their amps in a closet and mic'd up and playing through a an Apollo Twin interface, and it just it sounds amazing. Like so, and then from there, it's you know again, it's either if they if they want to come to town, they can come to town and do a vocal. Or if they live here, they can do the vocal. Um, but because of technology, because I can fit everything into a little backpack and a road case I can fly and carry everything. I mean, I've literally flown to Minnesota three times this year to do three singles with this artist up there. And I literally stay there. It takes me more time in driving and traveling than it does for me to track the vocal. So I literally will hop on a plane the night before with my gear, mic, interface, show up to their place. We record the vocal and I leave and I head back to the airport and I'm back on a plane and I head home and I'm 24 hours, 20, 30 hours. I'm, and so that's become more and more viable and actually become kind of a selling point, if you will, to mm -hmm. what I do. Because like if she's a mom of, of three kids, she may not be able to get away to come track a vocal, but I can run out there for a quick trip and, you know, build that into her budget and track a vocal. And then we go to mix and use a variety of mixing guys. Sometimes I mix it. I try not to mix anything that I produce. I just think it's good to have another set of ears on it. I think that's always proof to me. It's proven to be beneficial um, on songs that I'm producing, not to mix it. That may not always be the case depending on the budget. And, but usually, especially in the last few years, that's been the case. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and then to another guy for mastering who a couple of different guys I use for mastering. That's kind of a basic process. Okay. Um, why just out, out of curiosity? Yes. Yeah, so you can send out sessions to different players. Mm -hmm. um, do you do that because you have certain guitar player, certain bass player that you, piano player, whatever, that you love, just you love their sound, their tone, whatever, you want them to be a part of it, as opposed to, because you're a great guitar player. Mm -hmm. We've done a lot of stuff together, sure. and so I know that you're a great player. Um, so what's the purpose of sending it out to someone else as opposed to just you doing it yourself? You're pre-production on everything else. You're laying right. out pads and pianos, whatever. Right. And if you know you can play the part, why not use you play the part instead of having to wait on... I'm just, I, just curious. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's a great question. Um, uh yeah, I can play guitar. I have a lot of guitars in here, um, but I'm not the best, and I want the best. Okay. 
um, it's worth it for me to have the best for the artists that I'm producing. And I'm speaking into parts, like literally like I'm in pre-production. So we'll go back to drums for a minute on pre-production. Um, I'm literally building out the drum Track. part. Yeah. Like you're I have, telling the drummer what you want him to play. A, a very loose, a very, a very loose map, yeah. if you will, like a vibe. I'm giving him a vibe. Like yeah. he's a guy named Jacob in town a lot. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll tell Jacob, Hey, Hey, I've produced uh here, here's my vision of the drums. You do you like, this is kind of where I would love for it to sit idea wise. But if you feel a different kick pattern, totally open to it. And there's been times when he's literally just reproduced what I've given him mm -hmm. because he loved it so much. Yeah. And I actually asked him recently, I was like, Hey man, am I, am I putting you in a box too much when I, when I do this? He goes, no, I wish actually more producers would do that because mm -hmm. you're actually producing me without being in the room. Right. You're giving me a roadmap and he'll change up. And I, and I challenge him. I was like, please change up the fills. Like, Cause I'll just copy and paste sometimes the fills just because it's just pre-production, but like he'll go in and change that up or he may add something, you know, a little spice to it. But for the most part, he's simply just follow my map of what I give him. Um, from a guitar side of things, I, I'm a producer, guitar player. I'm not a session guitar player. And that's for me is like, there's guys that can get way better tone. And plus again, it's like the more the guys that I hire to play on stuff, are producers as well so they're gonna think parts they're gonna mm -hmm. think differently than i think and they swim in while, while i swim in the big picture world of production 24 7 practically they're just swim they swim in guitar world 24 right. 7 so that's sure. all they slip that's all they breathe and sleep so yeah. um i think you know there are a lot of guys who do everything and kudos to them and i do i do a lot like i do all the programming usually but sometimes i'll do a lot of programming and then i'll i'll send it to another guy and be like hey fill in any holes you hear like just Give me something. If there's anything you hear differently from a key standpoint, give it to me. And then I'll kind of just pick and choose and see what works best. And, um, you know, nine times out of ten, I'm cutting the acoustics on the record. So I'm working a lot, but I'm also – I'm working a lot on sending emails back and forth with players going, hey, I love this vibe. I don't love this vibe. Mm -hmm. And everybody that I work with player-wise is always, like, open-handed to going, okay, let's change it. Let's go back and recut something, you know. So, but then a lot of it's just like, man, what they turn in is just gold and sure. I just roll with it. So absolutely. Yeah. Um, can we talk about what a budget looks like when someone wants to have you come mm -hmm. and produce their, let's, we'll just do it, take a single for yeah. instance, because, because we live in a singles world currently, yeah. you know, most everything put out now is just, you know, you put a single, you put a single, you put a single, eventually that may turn into an EP or an album if you do enough within a year, whatever sure. it is. Um, but what in general, not necessarily you specifically, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily a business, but what would you say a, is a general budget that an artist would pay to have a song, a single produced currently yeah. nowadays? Yeah. Um, well, that's going to run a lot, um, on a few things. Um, you know, some guys are the all in one, all, all, all in one guy and they can afford to do a little bit cheaper than some guys who bring in outside players. Mm -hmm. um, I think experience level is going to play a lot into that. Um, you know, a guy that's been doing it 20 years is not going to be charged what a guy that's been doing it two years. The two-year guy may think he should charge what 20 years, okay. but that doesn't mean he deserves, he or she deserves what that because of the of Okay, the so what, what do you think someone who's been doing it for a couple of years? Yeah. Who's got that a couple of years of experience doing it and can do a can do a good job? Like, what would you say that that price 
should roughly be? I mean, what would you think? I mean, at some point, like there's still a little bit of going, hey, uh, and I think it's so situational. Like a single, a single college kid versus a married person who's got bills to pay mm-hmm. is going to be a little bit different on that too. So there's always that, you know. I, at two year, at two years into it, if you're still learning your stuff, like maybe you should just talk with the artist and say, "Hey, what do you have to offer? What could you pay me for this? A um, couple hundred dollars, four hundred dollars, three hundred dollars? You know, like you're still learning, but you're, you know, are you to the point where you feel confident enough that you can charge somebody to do that mm-hmm. and take that on and and turn around a four hundred dollar product, a three hundred dollar product? Like, where are you at on that? You know. Mm-hmm. Versus someone who's 20 years into it who may charge you five grand a track. Well, they've been doing it for 20 years, so they can charge five grand a track because they also have the track record of working with a certain amount, of, certain level artists, mm-hmm. a certain level, uh, have maybe maybe they have accolades to back that up, awards or singles or whatever. So I think that's, I've always seen that's how that's driven is like, um, it's very driven on, um, experience and and accomplishments so you know when someone wins an award i think people go well we can we can ask more now because they're they're they've proven themselves Mm -hmm. um so i think a two i think a two-year person you know could could teeter from the idea of going hey i'm open to talking about whatever you can afford which i know guys that do that they're like hey i'm brand new to town and i have you know very little experience i'm just trying to find artists that i can work with just so i can grow my craft and then there's guys that have been doing this forever. They're going to charge five, six thousand dollars a track. And then there's everybody in between. So I think as an artist, it's important to find. I think as an artist, it's important to find someone that you just connect with, personality-wise, and who sees the vision of your music. And then talk finances because I've had a lot of talks with people who about finances of, of record budgets, and then we realize we're maybe not the best people to work together. Not because we don't like each other. But my vision, my strengths, and my vision of how I work may not work well with how they what, where they want to go. So um, it's hard to put a number on it because everybody does it differently. It's, you know, I think most people do it by the song. So I will say that most people charge. Most producers I know will charge by the song, and that's very all inclusive to whether they're bringing in players, whether they're bringing in um, an outside mix guy, mastering guy, and it takes the pressure off the artist to think I don't have to pay this guy hourly. Does that make sense? So yeah. like, it's just here it is. This here is it one is. lump sum for the song, and it's up to the producer to manage that. And then you have to, and then you as a producer have to take that lump sum, and you have to pay extra players out of that. You have to pay the mixing guy, you have to pay the mastering guy, yep. and then whatever's left over is what you get. Yeah, to, which basically. is typically how labels work too. Like they're going to give the producer a big recording budget, <laughs> big is relative, but they're going to give them a, rec- a recording budget to go produce their artist and. That's going to include a lot. It basically, it's a producer's job to manage that budget to make that record happen and turn it in by the date that they've been given mm-hmm. by the label. So that's how a lot of producers work here in town. That's how I've worked for, gosh, forever. I was on a per song budget, and um, that's increased over the years because I've I've done more. It's increased because the economy's asked for me to increase it. You know, yeah. um, you know, more kids, more money. Um, so yeah, I think, but I also think the the the, the higher level of tracks that a producer is turning in and it's going to attract bigger artists per se, better artists, however you want to phrase that. Um, you start building trust in, in the community and you're turning out great work and it's doing something in the, in the art, in the, in the music community, then that kind of gives you some freedom, if you will, maybe to, to change your rates, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Okay. That's a big question that's, to answer. That I mean, is, it's, it's a, it's a, that's a great, no, but that's great information. And it is, I mean, there's a, yeah, everybody's different, but you know, it's just trying to figure out. So, so people listening that are artists thinking, okay, I need, I need Chris Clayton. I need Marty Keith. I need Seth Mosley, whoever, um, to, I want that person to record my song or my album. And you know, like you said, it's all over the map. You go online, you look up how much does it cost to record a song or to for a producer or whatever, and and everyone's different. I'm just trying to f- see if there's, you know, get get opinions from different producers on kind of what they feel an average rate might be for those types of things. So yeah. Just so that people listening have an idea, like, okay, I know what to expect. Yeah, I'll, I'll throw a range. I I think an a, a producer. This is not without me doing any research, but from just conversations I've had over the years. A producer who's who is very who's full time at what they do in this world in a CCM. Let's just put it the CCM worship market. Um, I would suspect it's going to range anywhere from three to five k a song. Okay, that's what I'm going to guess. People who are like producing out amazing work that's either getting it's either top tier independent artists or is also in the swimming in the label world. They're gonna, you're gonna look in that window probably. Um, you know, when you look at a producer who's very busy, they're gonna be charging more because their demand is higher. Mm-hmm. Someone who's not very busy is probably not gonna charge as much because there's no need for them to charge. They need to actually, they need to attract clients into their, to to their work. Yeah. Um. So someone, yeah, someone who's gonna be doing a lot of work, you sh- you should you should expect to pay more because they're in demand. Um, and they also may not be able to get to you right away because their calendar's full. So a lot of producers are like, I'm available and I'm this amount, but I can't even get to you until January. That's not them being egotistical. That's just the realistic schedule, yeah. schedule, you know? So I think that's probably a fair number. There probably may be people that listen and go, nah, that's not fair, but, or that's not accurate. But from what I've gathered. Yeah. And you, you've got your ear to the ground on what that is. Cause yeah. you, you work with so many, you and know, so many producers that and there's do guys this. in town that are more than that per sure. song. But and there's going to be some that are be less. But they're too. also and there's some and there's a, there's a lot that are less and there's the ones that are more uh, have probably opted I know guys who just do label work because they had they can stay busy enough with label artists and so yeah. they don't and I know some guys that have a label rate and an artist in a in a in an indie rate. Right. I know I know mix guys have that. Uh, mastering guys have that. Um so again, that's why the, there's so many variables to how this yeah. could, how this can play out. I always tell people there's so many different ways that we could we could we could work a budget because there's so many you know there's a lot of variables to a budget that can be increased monetarily or decreased monetarily depending on what you have. For me as a producer, if there's an artist that comes in that I hear their songs and I'm like, man, I really love what he or she is doing. Like this is awesome. I obviously don't can't do it for nothing, but and or you know are are very very discounted. But if they said, "Hey, I have a certain amount of money to work with, and I'll I'll figure a way." Well, I can't do four songs, but I can do two songs, and I've done that all the time. I'm like, I love what you're doing. I love the songs you're doing. I think there's a lot of potential of what you're doing here, and I know you'd love to do four songs, but I can't do it. For, I can't do four songs for the money you've given. But I'd love to be involved with what you're doing because I believe in you. But maybe we start with two. Let's see how the relationship goes. Let's see what you can do with these two songs. And um, that's been more beneficial, honestly, for both parties than than anything I've ever done. Yeah. So um, producers are looking, true producers are always looking out for talent that they want to invest in and not just want to take their money from. And 
that's kind of where I've been in the last few years. Like I want to, I want to surround myself with artists that I feel like I just connect with that. It's, I don't feel like I'm just hitting the red button. I'm actually pouring into them more than just, well, especially as a worship leader, like working with a lot of young worship pastors and leaders and like how I can help develop and mentor them Mm -hmm. outside of the red button. So what do you think is the hardest part of producing an artist? You know, they're no case songwriter as opposed to a great songwriter, but you're willing to do it anyway. Is it egos? Is it, you know, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so probably a couple answers. Practically, um, songwriting is probably the, can be the hardest part because if you don't have good songs, there's nothing I can do to make it, make it great. I mean, I can make it can you, sound amazing. It can sound Recording amazing. sound amazing, but the song, but still the song may not move you. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, there's terms for this. <laughs> so, so when an artist comes to me, I, before we ever talk anything, I'm just like, let's let's hear. I want to hear some songs. Like, send me a Dropbox of songs. I don't care if it's your iPhone work tapes. Like, I just want to hear. A, I want to hear how you sing, because especially if it's artists I've never worked with, like you know, I can go probably find them. If, but if they're new, I'm like, I don't know who they are. I'm like, can you actually sing? But I also want to hear your songs. Like, let's, let's if you want to record five songs, well, send me send me ten. Like, let's 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 write. Like, you need to write a bunch of songs to get to the five that you want to get to. So, but so send me what you have, and I'll give them some feedback. At least my initial thought. This happened yesterday. I got a guy that's. Uh, that wants me to do a single and he sent me a song and it's a great song, but I'm going to, we're meeting on Friday because he's like, he's open-handed like, Hey, if there's anything you suggest, maybe we could talk about tweaking some stuff. Well, I have a couple suggestions. It's a great, it's in a great place, but I want to sit down with him and go, Hey, this was my initial reaction on some, some of the stuff. And so I'd be remiss as your producer not to say this. So yeah, songwriting is huge to the point where, if it songs aren't there, I'll encourage them. Go, hey, why don't why don't we spend some time actually working on some songs together? Um, that way, I get excited about what I'm working on with you from a production standpoint. So we'll sit down and we'll actually write together. There's been artists that have come in with songs, a couple songs, and I go, hey, you know, you want you're wanting to do five songs, you only have two. Can we spend? a good two or three months just me setting up some rights if I, you know, and we write together. And these are artists that come that I like, okay, I really want to be a part of what they're doing. And so I wrote, I produced a girl named Sky Reedy uh, last year and Sky and Blaine and her husband and I, we, I mean, I literally pulled in different writers here in town to write for her project. Um, and Sky's super talented and a great worship leader. And we, I pulled in different people to write for, for her record. And we, and the songs that the songs that she brought to the table weren't worth the songs that we ended up recording because she fell in love more with the songs that we actually wrote for the project. Once I was involved, mm-hmm. that had nothing to do with me being involved. It's like, I, but I wanted to bring in my community of writers that I knew about that would resonate well with her. Yeah. Well, I mean, it does have to do with you being involved. Well, cause it, it, otherwise it, those things wouldn't have happened. You know, I understand what you're saying. Sure. I get it. But, yeah, but, Let's give credit where credit's due. You know, you because that's what the, that is the role of a producer. Sure, it is. That is part of it your is. job. It is is to pull out the best that, that you can of an artist, right? Yeah, and I think that's misunderstood today. Like I think people's view of producer is the guy that just sits down and with a mouse and a keyboard and, and makes tracks, and that's obviously part of it. But the the long lasting producers are the ones that pour into the artist from the very beginning and yeah. see potential and want to see. And help write the songs and help craft the songs and who are 
living with these artists to help make sure they have a launch a career that's that's just successful, if you will. Yeah, because at least back in the day, and this is still true to some point, depending on who who you're working with, who the yeah. producer is, whatever. But you know, in the old days, the producer wasn't the guy hitting the button. You had a recording engineer right, that right. would hit stop and start and record and whatever, right? And then the producer was the guy who was sitting in, sitting in the room giving direction, yeah, telling you, okay, you should do this or let's change this or what, hey, the player do this, that kind of thing. But you weren't doing, you weren't doing that and hitting the button right. back in the day. Now right. we live in a world where, you know, we have to multitask and we kind of do all of these parts together right. at the same time. It, and I honestly kind of wish we got, get, we'd get back to that a little bit because it's just more money though. It's, and that's kind of what I was getting at. Like you, we don't have the budgets to do that anymore, but there's been times where like I had an intern for a couple of years here and uh, we, he would literally just engineer some stuff for me. And like, he actually went to a drum session with me one time and I just got to just kind of hang out in the room and, be more engaged on the production side of things because I wasn't worried about is my signal coming in too hot? Do I, you know, how's that kick drum sound? All important stuff, but your brain gets split sometimes from the technical mm -hmm. and production side of things. Mm -hmm. But you reminded me, I, I don't know if you've seen this uh, on Disney Plus, this Beatles uh, documentary that's come out called Get, get, uh, uh, get Up, Get Back, Get Back. And uh, it's them, it's a documentary they they just released on the two weeks of writing and um, rehearsals of the Beatles getting ready to record. I think it's the Let It Be album on the rooftop. Mm. And they're all just literally circled up in this circle and all four of them, all four of the Beatles and just working out the parts. But in the back, kind of to the left, is George Martin, who's their producer. And he's just kind of just hovering and listening and every now and then he'll walk over there and give a little input and he'll kind of walk away. So he's actually producing before they're ever in the studio. Mm -hmm. And that's... That's kind of what I'm getting at. As a producer, is before we ever bring the players together, before we ever get in the red, it's like a true producer is someone who's investing in the artist from the song side of things. Um, so that's probably one challenge. I think. I think this. I think another challenge is I've always joked that I think every producer should should have a psychology degree <laughs> because you're dealing with people constantly uh, of all different temperaments, all different backgrounds, all different moods. Um, how do you produce a vocal from someone who's just walked through a very hard season of life, but they're singing a song about God's faithfulness? Like, how's how's a producer supposed to do that? I can get very mechanical and very robotic, and be more worried about pitch and timing and tone, and those are all important. But I'm not going to get any of those if I don't know how to talk to a person to get to them, to get to the meat, like get get to get out of their head and get to the heart. Um, Farron, you say all the time, and it's something I even use today, is like, put a picture on it. Like, for especially worship leaders, like, picture that person that sits on the third row of your of your, of your your church every Sunday. You're leading to that person, even though you're standing in a studio today behind a microphone. Like, what's the, how, would you, how would you lead that person? So it's like, that's always a challenge for me because one artist is not the same as the other artist from week to week. Yeah. So it's like having to learn how to... How to how to deal with different not deal that's not the right way to say it but how to how to just navigate yeah. different personalities and temperaments and um, upbringings and you know church church hurt you know I mean, all that it's sure just, it all comes into play yeah. when you deal with so many people oh, so. that's great that's great man I appreciate all that that's really good stuff for for all of us to hear um, 
we could sit and talk for hours on this yeah, stuff. This fun. I love doing this and hanging out with you, but I know you've got records to produce <laughs> and things to do. So, uh, so we'll wrap it up. But as we do, um, just like we do always, what's some advice that you would give either, you know, an artist, artists that are wanting to hire a producer, like what would you say to them if, you know, they came to you, like what would be some of that advice that you would give or for people that are getting into being producers and recording engineers and, and these types of things that yep. you've been a part of, like what, what is it that they need to know? Yep. Yeah. From Chris Clayton. I'll, I'll, I'll hit both sides of the coin there. Uh, I think for artists, um, uh, I think, and this is going to be, you're going to go, well, this is easier for you to say, Chris, because you are a producer. I think the, the biggest investment you could do as for your music is to bring in a producer who actually can help create your sound. Very few artists out there um, do a great job, in my opinion, of recording their own stuff solely. I, I think it's been proven that a team is always going to win out over just you sometimes some, some sitting in your bedroom. Now, is that always true? Not always. Uh, look, look at Billie Eilish. <laughs> you know, yeah, her and her brother. Great, great yeah. example of that. So, but that's one in a million, in my opinion. So I've always. This is just my opinion. I've always thought that, you know, two is better than one. When you build a team around what you're trying to do, if you look at if you look at any successful artist, they did not do it by themselves. And so, bringing in someone to help take what you've been given, this raw God-given talent that you've been given, and help shape that from a song perspective, from from a, a ministry perspective. Like, that's actually my favorite conversations is where you're sitting with artists, and me sitting here just having deep ministry conversations about how they're trying to figure out their path in ministry and how that translates to them, them me trusting me more with their music. Like, it's just, it's a, it's, it's kind of an unexplainable thing, but... Um, surround yourself with with people who are, who are better than what you do, and it will obviously bring bring what you do higher. Um, the old adage is the rising tide floats all boats. Like seriously, I've seen that happen so many times, even in the five years that I've moved here. Just being in being being in a relationship with people that are stronger and better than you will automatically make you um, a stronger and better person, musician, writer, producer, because you're challenged by that. So um, don't be afraid to build a team and find someone who is the right fit for you as a producer. Just because that person as a producer has 30 number one singles and is on the radio may not be the person for you. You've got to find the right person because you're linking arms with this person for X number of weeks, if not months, to create music. And if they're not going to capture your vision, they don't understand what you're going for, then you're going to be very frustrated at that. So do your homework. Bring build a team that, of people that fit what you're trying to do. As a producer, I would say, um, just start and just do. Meaning, you, you could go to school for that for production if you want, and you'll spend a lot of money, and that's great if you want to do that. But I can't tell you one producer here in town that has been very, very successful at what they do that I know personally that actually went to school. They just started doing it. They just literally bought the gear and they just started doing it, started putting in 10,000 hours and just doing it. And they've stayed diligent and they've had a lot of failures and they've had a lot of um, disappointments, but they've stayed with it and they've just done it. And I would say, um, remember that it's a service industry. So you're serving the artists. You're not trying to build your career on them. You're trying to help 
serve them to make their career the best it can be. And so if you walk away and you never get an accolade out of it, guess what? Your job is done because you, your job is to help make them the best that they can be. So um, serve. Serve the people that you're, that you're given and, and uh, serve them as well as you can. Thank you um, yeah, for, for your advice and your expertise and just hanging out and getting oh, to spend time with you. And, man, I'm excited for, for people to hear this, mm-hmm. hear this episode. I mm-hmm. love lots of good information. A lot of things that we haven't actually talked about before cool. with, with, a lot of our, uh, with a lot of guests. So a little more detailed focus on some, on some things. So I'm excited for people to hear it. So, well, I appreciate the invite. Yeah, man. I appreciate your friendship. And absolutely. And we need to write again soon. We do. (laughs) (laughs) We'll do it soon. All right. Have a great day. You too. All right. Well, there you have it. Chris Clayton is full of wisdom and knowledge when it comes to producing. Uh, I love the, the conversation that we had on the live album versus a studio album and just kind of how all those things work together and seeing the differences and similarities and kind of getting in depth in that. So I know a lot of you guys listening are into production and wanting to do some of those things. So I hope you're able to take what we talked about here and that you apply it to what you do in your career. Please let me know how that's going for you. Hit me up on Instagram at John Martin Keith on my Facebook page that you can make a living in the music industry at Facebook and um, or you can email me contact at johnmartinkeith.com you know how to reach out to me let me know what's going on with you I'd love to hear about it please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already please let your friends know about it ask them to subscribe and continue to get this out all over the place so grateful for you guys listening and being a part of the show and remember Edenbrook Productions is here to help if you need consulting services via phone call Skype, Zoom, or FaceTime, let us know how we can help you begin to make a living in the music industry.